Good morning, Outlook family. Sure is good to see everyone this morning. Whether you're here with me in the room or you're with us online, just really glad to be together. I'm looking forward to jumping in to God's Word with you. And before we do that, I want to ask you a question. How many people feel like this right now? Anyone feel like this right now? Yeah, good. Okay. That's all right. No shame in that. That's good. It is great, in fact, if you feel like this right now. But today we're also going to learn that it's okay if you don't feel like that. Uh, in this series, we are looking at the opening statements of Jesus in his most uh, widest, most prolific, most, uh, his deepest sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. And that sermon opens with these eight blessings, commonly called the Beatitudes. And so we're looking at them in this series, Truly Blessed. And here to read to us the second beatitude from various biblical translations is Jalen Megenhoffen. He is a freshman at Mount Vernon High School. Give it up for Jalen. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God blesses those people who grieve, they will find comfort. They are blessed who grieve, for God will comfort them. How happy are those who know what sorrow means, for they will be given courage and comfort. How blessed are those who mourn, because it is they who will be comforted. What delight comes to you when you wait upon the Lord, for you will find what you long for. Blessings on the mourners, you're going to be comforted. Awesome. Thanks, Jalen, very much. Thank you, sir. Blessings on the mourners. You're going to be comforted. In this, uh, as we look through these Beatitudes, and today we arrive at this second one that Jalen has read for us, uh, it's good for us to look, realize and see these Beatitudes as each uh, a facet of what it means to live life in God's kingdom. You can, you can almost picture that Jesus is holding up a multifaceted jewel. And as you look at it, he says, this is life in my kingdom. This is life as God gives it. And, and then as he turns it, you, you see the light refracting off of each facet. Last week, it was poverty of spirit or humility. It begins with that. And then he turns it just a little bit. And then we begin to talk about mourning. Next week, we'll be looking at meekness as we look at a different facet of this same jewel, so to speak. Hungering for righteousness comes after that. Each of these relating to the other in all a description of life in Jesus' kingdom. Now, as we saw last week, these Beatitudes correspond with Jesus' inaugural proclamation that we read in Luke chapter 4. You might remember the scene, we talked about it last week, in which Jesus stands up at the synagogue at the beginning of his ministry and reads from Isaiah the prophet, and then says, hey, what I just read, that is what I'm all about. And in that scroll, in Isaiah 61, it says, the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. That's what we talked about last week. It goes on, he has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted. He has sent me to tell those who mourn that the time of the Lord's favor has come. Now, we've already talked about what it means to be blessed according to this 
to these Beatitudes, what that word means and what it doesn't mean as Jesus uses it here. It doesn't mean that the people described are God's favorites. But what it does describe is the fact is that these are the folks who are going to experience and enjoy life in God most readily and most deeply. So now he turns to the idea that mourners are to be included in that number. So let's talk about what it means to mourn and why and how there is blessing in it according to Jesus. Are you ready? All right, let's do it. Now, the word mourn means exactly what we would think it means. It means to grieve, to lament, to feel sorrow. Sorrow is a key word here. Back in Isaiah, we read that the Savior was going to be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He's talking about Jesus, of course, we now know. And we're not talking about mere sentimentality. We're talking about real and raw emotion. We're talking about a Savior who knows and cares, who relates to our lives. He is a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And so when we think of this idea of mourning, we think of weeping, even wailing and waiting. People in biblical times definitely knew how to mourn. Uh, we see this even today in Jewish culture. If uh, a family member has passed, they sit shiva which is seven days of mourning and visiting from family and grieving. They allow time for that. They carve out space for that. And this was certainly true in biblical times, and we see it very clearly. Uh, mourning was a category of emotion that people knew how to embrace and express. So to mourn is to feel sorrow and to allow ourselves to feel sorrow. We may not always be so good at that, perhaps especially in our own Western American modern culture. But when we uh, aren't good at that, it also means we end up missing out on the full range of experiencing God's heart and grace and comfort. And so as we look at the scriptures, and specifically the life and ministry of Jesus, which is my favorite place to start in the scriptures when wanting to learn what Jesus means by something he says, three aspects of godly sorrow and mourning rise to the surface. So we're going to take a few minutes and explore those. We see in the life of ministry of Jesus sorrow for the price of our sin, Sorrow for the plight of the world and sorrow for the pain of life's losses. And as we allow ourselves to feel that sorrow, to mourn, we are also then allowing ourselves to experience the peace and consolation that Jesus promises. So let's look at these for just a second. Sorrow first for the price of our sin. Now, the very first word of the message of Jesus when he would enter a town was repent. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is what he declared. This is what he taught his disciples to declare when they shared his good news. And sorrow is linked with repentance. Grief over our sin is part of what that word means. To repent means to turn, but not carelessly or casually, but to stop and then in grief turn from that which separated us from God. Here's a place that kind of illustrates what I'm talking about. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus is pronouncing uh, 
what is called uh, some woes, or he's kind of scolding or chastising some towns that he has been in. Check this out. He says, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Now, what is he talking about here? Tyre and Sidon were cities against which the prophets in the Old Testament had pronounced God's judgment. So these are cities that his listeners would have been very familiar with, and he knows what he's saying way back there in what we now call our Old Testament, but in their Jewish scriptures, he's saying, if I had walked into those towns back then and said and did in those towns what I said and did in Chorazin and Bethsaida, those folks that we read about in our Jewish scriptures that the prophets had to pronounce judgment on, they would have repented. And they would have repented, he says, in sackcloth and ashes. They would have turned away from their disregard and rebellion toward God. And then he describes that repentance as the very picture of Jewish mourning sackcloth and ashes. That when someone went into a period of mourning, it was not uncommon for them to put on what was called sackcloth, or we might think of burlap, right? The kind of itchy, um, uncomfortable material that illustrates and accentuates the fact that this person is in suffering. They would put ashes on their head, again, to signify to anyone around the downcastness of their soul. So this is how Jesus describes repentance and what he's constantly calling people to. It is linked with mourning and grieving over our sin. See, there is no forgiveness, which is what we all need, without repentance. And baked into the concept of repentance is sorrow over our sin. At one point, the Apostle Paul called some Corinthian Christians to repent over some sin that they were consistently choosing to persist in. He writes them a letter. He calls them on that. He he encourages them, urges them, begs them to consider changing their ways. Kind of speaking like a prophet to them. And then later he writes this to them. The pain speaking of the pain of his kind of his rebuke in a previous letter, the pain caused you to repent and change your ways. It was the kind of sorrow God wants his people to have. For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow. In other words, it's a good and blessed thing to mourn over our own disregard of and disobedience to God. And friends, we're all in that boat. This is something that each of us gets to take time to consider before a God who's holy and just, but also loves us so much. The grace and mercy Jason highlighted to us earlier. That that we could take a moment and realize, I have lived in ways... I have spent days thinking I knew better than God. I spent days, weeks, or months ignoring His existence. This God who loves me and knows me so well, that's enough to to grieve on. That's enough to realize I have separated myself from Him. I have done and thought and said things that have kept me separated from this God who knows and loves me. That's enough to grieve. And when we do, we will then find comfort in His grace and love. 
Now, James seems to be, in his letter, thinking of the Beatitudes. We talked about this a little bit last week, and I'm quoting him again this week. Near the end of your New Testament, you'll read the letter of James. And James seems to definitely, in portions of his letter, be thinking about the Beatitudes, this punchy, convicting letter that he wrote. And in James chapter 4, we read this. Come near to God, and He will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Right? He's, he's writing like, almost like an Old Testament prophet. What does he say next? Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will lift you up. Again, in, in some pretty straightforward language, he's painting a picture of what repentance looks like. And it does start, it ends in joy, believe me, but it starts with some grief. It starts with the mourning that Jesus is calling us to in the second beatitude. It starts with acknowledging that which has separated us from God. It ruins our lives. It costs us eternal life until we come to him and, give, and receive his grace by our repentance and faith. So James is saying, repent, turn to God, grieve and mourn the sin that separated you from him and receive cleansing. Consider how low you've gone that you may be raised to life. It may seem old fashioned or out of place in today's world, but it is a good and healthy thing to stop and acknowledge in sorrow the price of our own individual sin. To know and to realize that it's each of us that sent Jesus to that cross. Amen? Second thing we can feel sorrow for, biblically speaking, is the plight of the world. That we can be sorry for our sin personally and sorrowful for sin generally and the suffering that it produces. One of only two places in the Gospels that we read of Jesus' tears is in Luke chapter 19. It says, uh, as he approached Jerusalem, this is just before uh, he goes to the cross on Good Friday. It says, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. Jesus wept over the city and the blindness of its people and leaders and systems. People, leaders, and systems whose sense of rightness and justice would soon nail him to a cross. What brought him to tears was not his own imminent suffering, but the pervasive ignorance and cruelty and wrongness he was walking into. And not only him, but he knew countless others who had suffered under it. Followers of this same Jesus see our world and can weep in much the same way. He wept over the city. And we can do the same as we consider our world when it treats brutally people made in God's image. When it exploits children or silences women or demoralizes men when it denies justice or condemns the innocent or rejects the so-called foreigner. If we're not grieved, we're either in denial or just not paying attention. Tears are part of this earthly life, perhaps especially, I believe, for disciples 
of Jesus, as a people who are defined by compassion, informed by love and mercy. These are the virtues at the very core of what it means to be a Jesus follower. We don't read headlines with a detached nonchalance. Our hearts break with every mass shooting. Our hearts go out to every teacher and doctor and nurse serving selflessly amidst this pandemic. We read these things and we are moved. Our hearts are in it. We might even be able to say, blessed are those whose hearts are in it. Starvation and systemic poverty, racial prejudice, homelessness, loneliness, environmental neglect, and pollution. There is much to mourn in our world. There's much to celebrate as well, don't get me wrong, but Jesus is carving out a space here in the second beatitude, right out the gate. Blessed are the mourners. They will find comfort. Yes, we repent of our sin, but yes, we also can lament injustice and moral blindness, just as he did as he approached Jerusalem, shedding tears with our Savior. When we care, we'll find ourselves mourning. And mourning, according to Jesus, is a blessed thing to do. So caring must be too. We open ourselves to our neighbor's plight and pain, and we share in it, and we don't sidestep it or deny it or ignore it. In Romans chapter 12, it says, Be happy with those who are happy. Weep with those who weep. Have the same concern for everyone. If these last couple years have taught us anything, it's that we need to be concerned for each other. Amen? Concerned for everyone. We must be humble and teachable enough to ask another, why are you weeping? What is going on in your life? We can end up finding ourselves quick to claim, I'm not responsible for your pain, and somehow convince ourselves then that we need not care that somehow one proves the other. But what if instead we stopped and listened and learned and said, tell me the story of your tears? What might happen then? A guy who, uh, a pastor named Mark Bragop, is the, he's the pastor at College Park Church on the north side of our city here in Indy. And he wrote a book called Weep With Me, how lament opens a door for racial reconciliation. He talks about this very topic. He writes in the book, While there are many steps to take, the least we can do is mourn together over the brokenness that creates so much division and hurt. What a description of our last couple years. Division and hurt. We can talk to God and allow the historical language of sorrow to pull us together. We need to help the church look more like what Jesus intended right now. He goes on, weeping with those who weep, referencing the scripture that I just read, opens a door for reconciliation. For the sake of the witness of the church and the validation of the gospel, we should mourn. Lament doesn't solve everything, he concludes, but it's a good place to start. It's certainly where Jesus starts as he begins his sermon. Jesus is not saying what so many seem to think he means. Blessed not is the bravado that insists nothing's wrong and everything's fine. Or the shallow surface spirituality that says we shouldn't talk about this stuff in church. What a downer. But instead, we can be people who come to terms with tears and the very real reasons for them. 
that we can bring the plight of the world before ourselves and before the Lord. Break our heart for what breaks yours. We'll get a chance to sing in just a moment. If we cut ourselves off from sorrow, we lose the chance to learn and love well. Jesus doesn't want us to cut ourselves off from that. Blessed are those who mourn. Sorrow for the price of our sins, sorrow for the plight of the world, but also sorrow for the pain of life's losses. The other of only two places in the Gospels we read of Jesus crying is at the tomb of Lazarus, standing with Lazarus' sister Mary. In John 11 it says, When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Verse 35. If you grew up in Sunday school, you know that's the shortest verse in the Bible. And if they're giving points for Bible memorization, you always made sure you got that one, right? If you remember that. Jesus wept. But man, in those two little words, a lot is being said. The Son of God, standing on, in, the, on that dust, in that dusty place with that mourning sister, wept with her. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. I can't help but think that when I'm going through pain, when you're going through pain, when we are allowing ourselves to mourn, that Jesus is right there with us. And when we allow that to happen and create space for that, others might even be able to see, man, see how Jesus loves them. See, Jesus ends up calling Lazarus back from death, out of the tomb, and yet he wept. The passage seems to indicate that he was even angry. There was some anger mixed with his empathy and grief. Anger at the tyranny of death. Anger at the the losses that we humans constantly face. Scriptures make it clear that we're allowed to grieve, encouraged to grieve those losses. Not without hope, but to grieve. And Jesus, we see here, knows how to grieve with us. His tears are a reminder that He loves and cares for every soul. See, here's what really bugs me. Somewhere along the line, people got the idea that church should look like this. A lot of smiley Faces, happy, chirpy, clappy people. The beautiful and the favored, the smooth and the carefree. That this is somehow what blessed really means. But this is so woefully incomplete as to be incorrect. Jesus is saying something very different. There is room. Joy is powerful. The joy of the Lord is our strength. But we also read in the scriptures that there's strength in weakness. In fact, power is perfected there. And in this beatitude, Jesus is reminding us that there's a certain level of comfort that only comes in mourning. Blessed are those who mourn. Jesus leaves room for gloom. And we need to be a church that Uh, that cries, that weeps, that makes space for tears. Some Christians and churches barely allow for this, right? All the talk is about prosperity or victory or positivity. But friends, sorrow pushes us to our depths. And our depths are what we like to talk about around here. Because we know that it's down deep, that all the things in our lives, they're really coming from those 
depths. That's where we need healing, and that's where our characters are formed. And so it takes us off just the surface of things. But sorrow then pushes us deep into reliance on others and on God. There's a Middle Eastern proverb that says, All sunshine makes a desert. That there are some things that only rain can grow. Some things only tears can form in our hearts and minds and characters. So it's only as we allow mourning to take us deeper that we can then mine the full riches of God's comfort. And that's where we wrap up this morning. You will be comforted, Jesus says. Comforted means encouraged, consoled, strengthened, to have someone at your side to strengthen you and to reinforce you. In Paul's letter, second letter to the Corinthians, he writes, God is our merciful Father and the source of all comfort. Someone say all comfort. He comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort others, it says. When they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort God has given us. And friends, we need comforted. Jesus is acknowledging that here, life on earth is hard. God never denies that or asks us to whistle past that, but instead to recognize it and then to lean on him within it. We need comforted. Jesus is promising that very thing, that reinforcement. And we will find on our own, if left to ourselves, we don't tell me you don't need comforted, and I won't tell you that I don't, because you and I will find comfort wherever and however we can. It never really does the job, but we'll settle for substitutes if we think that's all we have. But let me remind you this morning, friends, it's not all we have. Jesus himself, the God of all comfort, is providing us the true comfort we need. It's not at the bottom of a bottle. It's not at the conclusion of a Netflix binge. It's not after getting home from a shopping spree. We hope we'll find comfort at times in all of those things. We never do. Amen? Jesus is calling us here and in other, countless other places in the Scriptures, sit with your pain. Don't try to avoid it or deny it. Name it. And let it crack you open to experience God's true and lasting comfort. Jesus is saying in this beatitude, to need God's comfort is a good place to be. And no one can comfort like he can. Sorrow for the price of our sin brings comfort, the comfort of forgiveness. Sorrow for the plight of the world brings the comfort of being able to work for mercy and justice. There's a solace in that. Sorrow for the pain of life's losses drives us toward the comfort of hope of eternal life. Jesus says something to his disciples right before his death that would be true for them that very weekend, but also would end up, it's just a perfect little summary of what plays itself out as a plot point in countless disciples' stories to follow. In John 16, he says this, Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. Oh, there's room for joy, right? There's room for comfort. There's room for grace. There's room for all of those good things. And the way we get there is by acknowledging our need for them. This is our hope and our reality. There is a goodness in grief. There is a blessing in mourning because we are embracing what is while we're also anticipating what can and will be. And that's where I want to end. last book of the Bible says this. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things 
has passed away. It's the new order that now orders our lives. Amen? Let's pray about that. Jesus, it's this new order that you're giving. Uh, th- this order that, that to, to be comforted is to make space for mourning. That the kingdom of heaven is found in being poor in spirit. It's a new order. and It, it doesn't even always make instinctual sense to us at first. That's the upside-downness, the amazingness of your kingdom, of your ways. But there's so much wisdom in it. So Lord, we ask that in all the things that bring us sorrow, in all the losses, in all the pain, in all the sin, in all the, the, the plights of this world, and all the ways we've let ourselves drift and be separated from you, God, let us feel the kind of sorrow that you want us to feel. Not the kind that brings condemnation or regret, the kind that brings conviction and a, and a hunger for you. That sorrow we will embrace, Lord, so that we can then receive your comfort. God, we thank you for the truth of your words, and we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.